Uh, we're in, as you may have imagined, the final week of a series that we've called Facing Life's Ups and Downs, and we're looking at the life of David and how he lived in the midst of some pretty significant ups and downs. And so far, we've discussed him being uh, selected to be the next king, and we've seen him face Goliath, and we've seen the confusion as he's had to run for his life, and last week we looked at some of his victories, and today we're going to absolutely be looking at a down, 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 downer, <laughs> all right? And um, we're going to look at David's failure, and, um, you know, failure by definition is a, it's, it's a downer, right? It's, failure means not successful, <laughs> so that's kind of a downer. And, uh, you know, you think about this, you refer to, you do something dumb, and you're like, oh, fail, right? Or uh, you don't want to be described as a failure, you don't want engine failure, heart failure. Um, You don't, you know, you think, uh, if you're a student right now, how many of you are like, I sure hope I fail my next exam, right? Or if you're my age, I sure hope I fail my next doctor's appointment exam, you know? Failure is, is, can be a really devastating thing in our life, and we want, we want to avoid it generally. These are just not things that we set out as goals. And J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, says this. I think it's quite fascinating. She says, It is impossible to live without failure at something unless you live so cautiously that you might, you well, <laughs> that you might as well not have lived at all, in which case you have failed by default. See, the reality of, his, of life is that every single person in the world fails, right? And I, I started thinking about this a little bit, and I, I said, well, let's, let's look at some of the failures of people. Check this out. You guys know James Dyson, right? He had, I don't know if you know this part, over 5,000 failed prototypes over 15 years before he came up with the successful bagless Dyson vacuum that cost $300,000, his net worth is, seriously, the net worth of Dyson is $4.5 billion. And then uh, Steven Spielberg, he's the one on the right. Uh, he was uh, rejected twice, two times from USC's School of Cinematic Arts. I think that's actually a fail on USC, not on him, probably. Uh, Michael Jordan says this. By the way, I had, in college, I had this poster in my room because I was going to be just like that. Anyway, um, he says this, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games 26 times. I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life. Van Gogh, right here, kind of a fail. He cut off his ear. That's not what we're talking about. I don't know if you know this. You know how many paintings he sold in his life? One just before he died. Most of us don't have the stamina to keep going with that. And then Abraham Lincoln, Honest Abe, listen to this list of failures. First of all, he went on a military campaign. He left as a captain and returned as a private. He had failed business attempts, went bankrupt, took him 17 years to pay it off. He ran for state legislator, fail. Speaker of the state legislator, fail. Congress, Fail, elector, fail, Congress again, fail, land officer in his home state, fail, Senate, fail, tried to get the vice presidential nomination from his own party, and he received, he didn't not only failed, he received less than 100 votes. Like, that's epic, then he ran for Senate again, fail. See, fail, you, you see these, I love these t-shirts, failure is not an option, these bumper stickers, it's right, failure is not an option, it is a certainty, 
We will fail at life. And so here's the punchline for today if you're a note taker. Write this down. Failure does not define you. What you do after failure does. Failure does not define you. What you do after failure does. And I love this quote by Henry Ford. He says, failure is simply an opportunity to begin again, this time more intelligently. Well, let me just tell you, Henry Ford, the Ford family owns the lions. If anyone knows anything about failure, Henry Ford. But I, I'm not sure they begin again more intelligently, but they know about failure at least. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at what failure is, but not just personal failures. I want to understand from a spiritual biblical content, context, what is failure? What does that look like and how does that connect with us being human and being spiritual beings all at the same time? And so in order to do that, the first thing we have to do is draw a baseline of what spiritual failure is. And this is where it's kind of interesting because in biblical terms, there are words that we don't really generally use outside of biblical discussions. So those words, the first one you, you, is kind of churchy word, it's iniquity. Well, iniquity is pretty simple. It just means crooked behavior, right? Everyone here has experienced the wrong end of someone else's crooked behavior. They're a crook or they, you know, they bent the truth. And actually, we've done it too, right? From time to time, we, we've done something crooked. So that's the first word, iniquity. The second word is transgression. And transgression simply means broken trust. Raise your hand if you've never broken anyone's trust. Right. Because we all break trust. And if you did raise your hand, you just committed iniquity. So you're, anyway, so... <laughs> The third one, though, that we really hate is this, it, it's a really churchy word. It's called sin, right? No one wants to be called a sinner. We don't like to use that word. It feels so judgy. But here's the thing that's interesting about sin. It's not even actually all that spiritual or biblical word. The, the Hebrew word is hata. It's like you have something you throw, hata, and the Hebrew equivalent is hamartia. And it just simply means to fail or miss the mark. That's all it means. And uh, like in Judges 20, we're told about these 700 left-handed soldiers who could sling a rock at a hair without hata, without missing the mark, right? Or, or we're told, don't make, in Proverbs, don't make hasty decisions, because if you do, you might hata your destination, right? So it's not even really a spiritual word. And these three words, as you read different uh, translations, they get interchanged. They're, they're used kind of on top of each other. Some, some, one might read this way and one might read this way. But they mean about the same thing in different terms. And so biblically speaking, sin is just failure to meet a goal. And that failure is not treating others or not treating God with the respect that's due to him. Uh, you look at the Ten Commandments, Half of the Ten Commandments, five, of the, that's five is half a ten, five of the Ten Commandments are about ways that we can fail in treating others with respect or treating others honorably. And five of them are about how we could fail at treating God with his due respect. And so you see this really interesting connection between the way we treat others and the way we treat God. They're inseparable almost. The way we treat God and the way we treat others are connected. And what's really interesting is just like we all fail in life, we also all fail spiritually. Every single one of us. And the classic verse is Romans 3.23, and it says, For all have sinned 
the word there, hamartia, all of us have hamartia, broken trust, and we fall short of God's glory. I love the way the living, New Living Translation says, for everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take the time remaining to look at, at how failure played out in the life of David in some pretty significant failures and try and pull from it a few different things that I think can dramatically affect the way we live. And so first, though, let's just talk about this. So David, uh, here's a little timeline for you. So David was anointed, right? He's selected. Remember this? We talked about this the first week. He's anointed to be the next king. He's probably about 30 years old at this point, or 13 years old at this point. And he's, he's selected to be the next king. And then we don't really know much about him for the next year and a half or two years until he shows up to kill Goliath at 15. All right? Probably could have retired. That's pretty epic, right? But 15 killing, you know, setting Israel free. But about two years later, he, he kills Goliath. And then for the next seven years, he lives in the good graces of King Saul. And he's, uh, you know, he joins the army. He's a musician. But here's what's interesting. He's gaining popularity with the people. And Saul's getting pretty insecure about this because he's like, hey, this guy's going to take my throne. Correct. So he tries to kill him, and David runs from Saul for the next eight years. So he's, he's anointed at 13. He doesn't become king until he's 30 years old, 17 years later. It's a long time. And most of the stories that we've talked about up until this point happen in those first 30-ish years, give or take. What we're going to do now is he becomes king at 30, lives 40 years, dies at 70, we're going to fast forward from his becoming king at 30 to him being 51-year-old Saul. 21 years later is when this story takes place. Now, 51 today is different than 51 back then. We have medical advances. People live much healthier lives today than they did back then. So he's, you know, kind of not, he, he doesn't run as fast or jump as high. Maybe he can't shoot the rock and, you know, without missing anymore. That's where we are. We're going to pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it says this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, who goes out in the spring? It's not really hard. It says kings right there. The kings go out. Where's David? Jerusalem. Kings go out, but not David. Now, I don't know why he didn't go out. I don't know if he's like, I'm just so tired. I've been doing this for 21 years. Do I have to do it again every spring? We have to go out and fight. Maybe he didn't feel up to me. He's sick. I, we don't know. What we do know is he wasn't where he was supposed to be. And so we have to ask ourselves a question, why do we fail? Let's start with that. And there are many reasons, you know, Proverbs tells us pride and arrogance lead to a fall and destruction, or maybe there's just willfulness, uh, entitlement, or thoughtlessness. Here's what we see in the passage, though. We see this, that when we are not actively pursuing our call and purpose, we find bad substitutes. When we're not actively pursuing our calm purpose, we find bad substitutes. Let's look at this. So David's supposed to be at war, but he's not, and he creates a mess for himself. Verse 2 of that same chapter says this, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from there he saw a woman bathing. 
All right, bad news right there. I don't know, again, why he's up on the roof. Maybe he couldn't sleep. Maybe he knew that's when women bathed. I don't know. But he's up on the roof and not where? At war. That's what we do know. He's not where he belongs. And then, uh, so, so David find, sees her bathing. What's the next logical step? He sends someone to go find out, hey, give me some information on this woman. She's, she's, she looks good in that bathtub, is what he's thinking. So he sends this person out. The person comes back and says, hey, I found out about, about her name's Bathsheba. She's the wife, 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 wife of Uriah who's at war right now where you should be. Well, he doesn't say the last part, but... It's the wife of Uriah. So that obviously shuts it down. No, no, no. David's next move is to say, bring her to me. So he calls her in, brings her into the palace. He has sex with her, and she gets pregnant. And just so you understand, this is probably less like an affair and more like rape, to be quite frank. In that time, women didn't have much voice. And when the king summoned anyone, you came. This probably wasn't a one-night thing. This was probably over some time. She gets pregnant. And now David has definitely failed. Hata, missed the mark, right? So, what do we do when we fail? Oh, by the way, so he does one last thing before we talk about this. So what does he do? He decides, well, I'll hold off on this part. He has this fail. What do we do when we fail? By all accounts, this is a fail. This is an epic failure. And he has a choice to make. And here's the first thing I want us all to understand. Every single time we fail, we have a choice to make. And that choice is what is the very next thing I'm going to do. Because like I said, failure does not define us. What you do after fail will define you. And most times the choice is pretty simple. It's just hard to do. And David's in that place where he's got a choice to make and he makes a choice. Since Bathsheba's pregnant, he devises this crazy plan. And he calls Uriah back off the battlefield, and he says, Uriah, tell me about the battle. Tell me about Joab, how the men doing. He says, yeah, it's all, everything's good. He says, oh, great. Why don't you go home and be with your wife? Go sleep with her. Because he wants it to look like Uriah got his, got his own wife pregnant. So he sends Uriah off, but the problem is Uriah goes down to the front gate and sleeps at the gate where all the servants sleep. And David finds out about this. He says, Uriah, why did you do that the next day? He says, why did you do that? And he said, well, hi, listen, king, all of Israel, the army people, they're all living in tents and out in the open. How can I live in luxury, David, when all of Israel is at war? So David says, well, stay one more day. And he, he has Mariah come over the next day, and he gets him drunk. And he says, why don't you go home and be with your wife? She, he doesn't do it again. He sleeps at the gate. So David devises his third plan. This one is quite successful. He orders a hit. That's what he does. David sends him out and tells Joab, the commander, hey, put Uriah in the heat of the battle. Put him at the front. Put him where it's hottest. And when it gets the most lit, withdraw your men, leaving him unprotected, undefended, so he'll die. Success. He dies. So... Now he's effectively killed the problem. Now he's going to marry Bathsheba because why? Because he wants it to look like a legitimate pregnancy through his marriage. He wants to look like a good guy. Response number one, when we fail, we see clearly with David. Response one is we cover up. 
And we've all done this, every one of us, right? This goes way back to Adam and Eve even. You know, when they failed their original sin, what did they do? They hid, which covering up is just a form of hiding, and, and they actually covered their shame. They built, you know, they took animal skins and, or whatever they did, and they, they made clothing to cover their shame. That's the first thing that happened. And then, you know, let me just step on some toes here. We've all done this too. Hey, listen, if my parents call, will you just, uh, just tell them, Hey, if my uh, husband asks, right? See, because we want to cover it up. And what's, what, what the problem is, is at the core of this is a belief that we hold that looking like we're blameless is more important than being in right relationship with God who created us. So we try and cover. It's like putting makeup on. Makeup doesn't get rid of the blemish. It covers it up, and a lot of times it can actually make it worse. Right? I, I read this article. I brought a magazine in case my message was boring today. Um, I read this, uh, this article about Elton John has just released a book, and he has this quote or this uh, thing he says about his struggle for sobriety. It's, it's, it's just really, really cool. He says this. When you're using, and when you're an addict, and when you're an alcoholic, honesty is the farthest thing from your mind. It's all about deceit and covering up and covering your tracks. When I got sober, I got all my secrets out. See, Elton John understood at that moment when he, in order for him to come clean from his crooked behavior, his trust breaking, he had to have it all out in the open. And what we do so often when we make our first mistake, we make a second mistake, as David did, by trying to cover our tracks. And we believe that that's better. But what happens next is super interesting. So Nathan, so the first thing we cover up, the uh, second thing in just a second, but here's what happens next. Nathan, who's a prophet and he, uh, during the time of David and Solomon, and a prophet was just someone that God used to, to share his message with the people. And Nathan goes to him, and uh, he comes up with this really cool story that he tells David. And the story, I'm not going to share the story. You can read it if you want. He comes up with this really cool story about this guy who does bad stuff. But it's really a parallel story to David's life with Bathsheba and Uriah. And David hears this story, and he is on fire mad. And fuego, as Jason Dunn always says. He's in fuego, right? He's just fired up about this. And he's like, that guy that did that, he has to die. And Nathan the prophet says, hashtag, you the man, but not in a good way. Look at this. I'll, I'll read it to you from, again, from 2 Samuel, picking up in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 7. He says this. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity. We not only cover things up, the next thing we like to do is blame others, right? 
hey, you know, she started it. Okay, she started it. I, I did, this was her. Or, uh, you know what? If he wasn't working so much, you know what? If she was just more, if she could be more affectionate. And we start to blame other people for what, what we're doing. You know, everyone's doing It's not even really wrong. It's, I know it's against the law, but everyone's doing it. Or we, you know, hey, listen, if they didn't want their money stolen, they should have kept better track of it. <laughs> right? It's the, everything is their fault. And again, it buys into the same core belief that looking clean is better than actually being clean. And living the way God intended us to live. And here's maybe what's even worse. We do this one. You know, well, if, if God would have just, then I, if, if God wouldn't have done this, I would have. Or you know what? God should have. And we blame God for our own problems. The third thing we do, first we cover up, then we blame the third thing we do. And this is kind of actually a byproduct, not really a direct Response. The byproduct of these responses, though, is we create legacy. Oh, and let me tell you this. This is really interesting uh, about blaming others. You see this in this passage. He says this really, thing that's really interesting. He says, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. This is what Nathan says to him. What does that mean, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites? Well, remember where David was supposed to be at war? Who were they at war with? The Ammonites. And what Nathan is saying to him is, you're act, you killed this guy and you're laying the blame on them. Very fascinating. Anyway, the next thing that happens is we create legacy. He says, Nathan speaking to David, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house. And he goes on to say, I'm going to stir up evil within your house against you. So the sword that you killed with is always going to be in your house And there's this thing that we see in the book of Numbers, I think it's in Leviticus as well, it's called sins of the father. Now we can see that Nathan said this is going to happen, but let me just make it really simple, not even super spiritual, right? Let's, Let's talk about sins of the father. Sins of the father is quite simply, you're going to say this, don't do what I do, do what I say. What do your kids do? They do what you do. And this is exactly what happens in David's life. You see that his children, directly related to Bathsheba, as a matter of fact, do and repeat the exact behaviors that David had in his leadership. Right? David's son, who was probably next to be King Amnon, he just has this overwhelming sense of lust for this girl, this uh, Tamar, who's probably a half-sister and Absalom's full sister. And so he devises his plan and he rapes her. And then enter Absalom, who is so upset, he devises a plan and murders him. The very things that happened in the life of David with Bathsheba are carried out in the next generation. Sins of the father. What you see is what you do. But here's, here's what's, what's the, the fourth thing. It's pretty interesting. We also like to ignore, and this happens in David's life. Now, when David hears about the Tamar's rape by Amnon, you know what it tells us? He is in fuego again. He's so furious that you know what he does? Nothing. Nothing. 
And when Absalom, the full sister, or the full brother of Tamar, finds out about the rape, you know what he does? Nothing for two years. As a matter of fact, he goes to her and he says, hey, shh, don't tell anyone about this. Just pretend it didn't happen. You don't want to carry that shame. The problem with that is when you ignore these failures and these sins in your life, they fester. And that's exactly what caused the murder is that for two years, and then there's a whole bunch of fallout after this too, but for two years, Absalom sits and festers and finally decides, I'm, I'm done with this. And what happens when a sore inside of you festers, whatever comes out is bad stuff. And that's the same thing that's true with sin. So the fifth response, though, is cover up, blame, create legacy, ignore. And the fifth is this, we confess. Now, we said when you're not actively pursuing your call and purpose, what happens? We find bad substitutes. But what happens when you are? Well, when you are actively pursuing your call and purpose, we humbly own our failure and confess to God. And here's what's amazing. When we confess to God, he restores us. Now, look at this again, 12, chapter 12, verse 13. David said, to, David said to Nathan, after Nathan gave him that little report, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Okay, let me, hold on. Who did he sin against? Wait, but I thought he sinned against Absalom, and I thought he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. Remember he's saying how we treat each other is directly related to how we connect with God? This is exactly that point. He has sinned against humanity, which is a sin against God, and he owns it in this moment and realizes he has failed hata with God. But even more interesting, he refuses to allow this part of his life to be the defining moment. By the way, this whole, this whole last portion of David's life, you're going out, this is how people are going to remember you, right? And what is David called? The man that kills people. No. He's called a man after God's own heart. Why is that? Because he owned his stuff. He went to God and he confessed and received. And it's interesting that when he's talking to Nathan, he confesses before Nathan, he confesses before his people, and Nathan says, don't worry, God's not going to kill you. He's not going to rip the kingdom from you, but you're going to have some consequences. And those things played out in his life. I love this. It says, you know, when we confess, here's something you really need to know. It's very, very important. When you confess, he forgives, period, period. And you may have struggled with this in the past where you've done something and you're like, God, please forgive me. Man, and then you go for a month and you don't feel forgiven, right? Anyone experienced that? This thing I've done has been so bad, I just don't feel forgiven. Well, guess what? doesn't matter. You are. It says, if we confess, and let's look at this. If we confess, that's hamartia, failure. He is faithful and just to forgive our failure, hamartia, sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. That word there is iniquity, crooked behavior. When? When we confess. And here's something that's so important for all of us. When you do something that is a spiritual failure and you confess and you don't feel like it, tell your feelings the truth until they catch up. 
You are forgiven the second you confess, not when you feel like it. Okay? Super important because so many of us walk around feeling so broken and beat up when God has already forgiven us. And here's the other thing. What sins are covered? Well, nah, but not, not all. I mean, most, the, not the really bad ones, right? No, no. Every sin, and some of us are sitting here today going, yeah, you don't know me. Well, true, David kind of jacked it up, though, in my opinion. All of your sins, look at this, Romans 5, 20. But the law came to increase and expand the awareness of the trespass by defining and unmasking sin. Law came so we'd know when we're sinning. But where sin increased, God's remarkable, gracious gift of grace, his unmerited favor has surpassed and increased all the more. We can never out-sin God's grace. That's what that verse says. No matter what you've done, God's grace is there for you. Understand that no matter what we do, when we confess to him, God will forgive us. And we may have to live with consequences. Life, you know, you tell your kids, good choice, good consequence, bad choice, bad consequence. That's a part of life. And you may have to live with consequences. But you are forgiven and restored in right relationship with him when you do it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close out this morning. We're going to do one of the most exciting things uh, for me as a church that we do, and it's celebrate baptisms. And baptisms are, could not be a more direct example of God's forgiveness, of us saying, God, I have sinned, forgive me, accept me back, and we publicly declare it. And we're going to pray, but let me read one last quote. It's by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he says this, the greatest glory in living lies not in never failing, but in rising every time we fall. And in the same way that Dyson had 5,000 failed prototypes and Michael Jordan missed 9,000 shots, but kept shooting, our spiritual condition is exactly the same. No matter how many times we fall, God's grace doesn't run out and it's always available to us. So let's pray, and then we'll head into this moment of baptism. Lord Jesus, thank you for this uh, opportunity just to receive your word and understand that you care far more about us drawing close to you and receiving the forgiveness you offer than appearing like we've got it all together. And I pray for every person that's here today that as we think through our lives and as we behave and as we fail, that we could move forward as David finally did by confessing to you that you are what we need. Thank you for your love. Help us live toward the call that you have on our life so that failure does not define us, but what we do after our failure does. We can be known as those people who pursue you wholeheartedly, and we can be known as people after God's own heart as well. We love you and we ask this in your name.